1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, this is Bernardo Vattis for the New Books, New Books Network podcast. And as our guest today, we have James W. Cortada talking about his book, The Birth of Modern Facts. James Cortada. Uh, graduated uh, in in history and then worked for 40 years in IBM. He has written a large number of books on the topic of IT and organizations and their interaction with technology. His latest book, Birth of Modern Facts, is published by Holman and Littlefield. James, thank you very much for being with us at NBN.
0: Pleasure to be here.
1: And I will add to the link of the um, podcast our previous uh, discussion on your book on the history of IBM uh, so if you don't mind we can jump into to this one, uh, Birth of Modern Facts so tell us a little bit of how you were linking this book with your previous contributions how, how the idea for this new book came about
0: oh What happened was that uh, as I was writing about the history of IBM and about computers, I realized that the real story is about the evolution of information. You and I do not buy computers because we like technology. We buy computers because they give us information and a certain number of answers per month, if you will. You know, it comes out of the machine. And I had noticed over the years in in doing other research on the history of information itself, that more information appeared and more information was used and more information had changed in the last 200 years than in all previous time in human history. And I found that to be most interesting uh, because from the 18th century forward, you have scientific research, You have uh, scholarship very similar to what we have today. And then in the 19th century, you have the introduction of uh, electrified information, the telegraph, telephone, radio, and then later on television, and then finally computers. And that's how that connected to my earlier studies on things like IBM and the history of computing. So I, I concluded there was a much larger story here than just simply about machines and software. So I decided to explore how information uh, had changed over time. And it became quite obvious that a lot of things were going on. Uh, To begin with, uh, beginning uh, largely in in the 18th century in Europe, or even earlier, uh, the amount of literacy increased. The number of uh, publications increased. Uh, literacy rates in North America were very high from the first days that uh, the Pilgrims came over, because a lot of them were political dissidents and ministers and scholars and what have you. So you have a lot of um, uh, of literacy, and as the economies of the of on both sides of the Atlantic uh, improved dramatically in the 18th and 19th centuries, they could afford to create new information. And what happened then was that new information was created, uh, information was organized, the library systems that we know of today. Uh, More people acquired information, more people studied it and added to that collection, building momentum up all through the 19th and 20th centuries. And that led to the uh, introduction of collections or subgroups called disciplines in the academic world. So you have people who specialize in physics and others in chemistry and others in history and others in literature. And each one developed their own bodies of information. And that led to uh, larger universities, to uh, more publishing, to uh, professions, all of which were grounded in new bodies of information that did not exist prior to the 19th century. And that's how we get to the concept of the birth of modern facts. So if you took a a, a scientist from the 1700s and had him sit down and talk to somebody today who is also a scientist, the conversation would would pass each other. The vocabulary is different. The, The basic knowledge is different. The scientific method allowed for a better organization and understanding of how to acquire new information. So two things happened. One was uh, there were more people discovering facts or information, such as how biological systems work and so on. The second thing was they added more information at the same time, uh, because in some cases they created it. Let me give you an example. Supposing you wanted to uh, study um, what Mexican banks were doing with computers. Uh, you would have to create that information, wouldn't you? You'd have to go and interview people. You would have to find uh, old documents. Some of that is discovery, the old documents, but some of it would be new if you talked to two people and then you, you combined uh, their, their information together to get a, a composite view of say Mexican banking. That's new information. You created it because you wanted it, you needed it for your work. Well, it's the same thing across all these disciplines. And that's how we got to this whole issue of modern facts. So something um, that, well, two key terms
1: that you have used throughout the book and in, in the explanation that you also gave a moment ago are precisely information and facts. And right at the start of the book, You say, well, information as a concept has changed, and therefore I'm not going
0: to try to define it. Did I get that correct? That's reasonably correct, yes. When when you take a look at any subject, (coughs) the vocabulary changes over time and the meanings. So, for example, as late as the early 1900s, people tended to use the word knowledge. In fact, that's still the case. Knowledge combines wisdom, uh, specific uh, pieces of information, such as the the date of your birth, the temperature outside. It also uh, can involve uh, context. So you have multiple things that go into this word knowledge. As we went through the 20th century, all disciplines tried to become more specific in the language that they use with more precise definitions of what they mean in physics, biology, history, and so on. Well, it's the same thing with uh, knowledge and information. Knowledge was too fuzzy. It was good for the priests and the the philosophers. And uh, when you had massive uh, uh, bodies of information prior to the 19th century, they were all combined together, such as politics and economics and history as one field, But that was too fuzzy. So over time, People began to uh, create definitions that were specific to information, as specific to context, as specific to wisdom. And so we got increasingly to the word information. And then today, because of all the data collection, uh, we get even to a, a smaller, narrower definition, which is facts. You know, September 7th is my birthday. That's a fact, Uh, but the fact uh, fits in nicely with information also in that it can also be, information can also be my birthday, September 7th, or that in addition to my birthday being September 7th, uh, I I came from a family that lived in Cuba. Um, So one can be defined either the same facts and and information or information and facts are, are separate. It depends on who you're talking to. I chose to use the word facts here because in a in a prior book that I published back in 2016 on the history of uh, the amount of information in the United States, it became very obvious to me at the time that people wanted information in order to do something. So it was a tool. Tell me how to fix my lawnmower. Uh, tell me how to cook a paella, you know, whatever. It's specific. They wanted facts. I need this amount of uh, chicken. I need this amount of sausage. I need this amount of of uh, rice to make a paella. Those are facts. And they treated it as facts as a tool. With that, they could make a paella or do whatever they wanted to do. So increasingly, I favored the word facts in that book. And since this book was an extension of that earlier study, I decided I would keep the word facts, but as I said in the preface, it doesn't matter to me whether you want to use the word facts or information. I use them interchangeably because that's what people do today. And I'm writing for people who live today.
1: Yes, but for, and and I'm appealing to the historian. Yes. There is an important difference between information and. And, and fact, and there is, there is a whole discussion within the, the how to study history as to determine what is and what is not a fact and how that, yes. how that informs and changes the view. I mean, one of the things, I, I don't know if this, this is your understanding as well, but one of the things that you want to do as a historian is to establish facts, to establish things that we can agree on things that happen in a certain Correct. way and that we can say, well, it's not a supposition. We are more or less confident that this happens. Now, yes. how does that look like when you have to... Um, uh, uh, attitudes publicly in different countries where you know, people are questioning whether facts exist or not. Like, they want to have their own view of the world yes. as the, that is prevalent and, and disregard the the, the the
0: notion that
1: there can be a fact, no? If, if it's yeah, not... No,
0: yeah, yeah. So um, it, I've, I've had to deal with this issue. Uh, actually, uh, I had to deal with it uh, across a couple of books because it's very complicated. What I did in this book was I said, everybody in a particular discipline has their own definition of what is a fact, what is information. And so the book is organized by traditional academic disciplines, the ones that created the greatest amount of new information in the 19th and 20th centuries. So there's a chapter, for example, on how the librarians did it, another one on how computer scientists did it, another one on how business people did it, another one on economists and political scientists, and uh, people in physics and chemistry and so in each of those chapters i say here's how they have dealt with that issue right so for example in the case of the uh the historians starting like everybody else in the 19th century they said accurate information will be based on such things as looking at original documents that were written at the time of an event right and so we have all, as historians, been trained that uh, you're not really looking at the facts unless you study the original documents, uh, and, and, and of which there are billions and billions and billions of them. You know, it's uh, that's why you have all these libraries and archives. Uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, somebody who's studying space and other planets, they don't rely on on documents, they have to rely on uh, sensors and uh, mathematical calculations of, of uh, certain physical realities, relationships between objects and atoms and so on and so forth, noise and what have you. So they had to come up with a very different explanation. So that's why I went through each of the disciplines, the major disciplines, not all of them, but the, the ones that normally you and I would think of, and that were also the greatest creators of new information. That takes care of that piece. Within each, you have debates about what constitutes truth, facts, things that really happened. Was was Jim really born on September 7th? What, you know, how do we know that, you know? Uh, so there are debates about that. And of course, uh, since around the uh, uh, the early uh, 2000s with the rise of such things as Bolsonaro and, and Trump and so on, you, you just, it's become a public discussion. Uh, it was less so uh, earlier in the century, although uh, I discovered that there were a lot of fake facts being uh, pushed around by oil companies or or uh, other companies that were doing other things so uh, uh, so fake facts uh, is is a is a real problem. It's more so today because through the internet, we have the ability to have everybody participate in creating information. So in earlier times, you had to be a scholar, you had to be an expert, uh, there were gatekeepers, there were people who were preventing a, a rubbish from being printed. Today, you and I can go out on the internet and we can say whatever we want uh, without any uh, quality control and have millions of people believe what you say. So. That's a real problem. And I've written a couple of books around this issue. Uh, We can talk about it on another occasion, but uh, the more people who got involved with information, the more difficult it became to determine what is real and what is not. That's why you have fact checkers uh, on the internet. It's why you still have uh, editors of books that will insist that your manuscripts go out to uh, experts in your field. To describe that, it's a huge problem today. We don't know how big of a problem it is, uh, but it's a huge problem. And, and, and
1: of course, we don't know how to deal with it in the sense of whether it's desirable to come back and have an agreement of what is a fact and what is truth. Or moving forward, everybody will have their own understanding of what is a fact and what is truth, which can make it problematic in, in different ways
0: both both are are occurring right now every discipline i uh, looked at is having this debate Uh, there you know in physics how do we know that there really are a a billion planets out there you know uh what's a black hole you know uh how do we know that there really is a black hole uh, out in space that sucks up all the energy right how do we know that so they're having that debate um Regulators uh, who are looking at social media are saying, well, how do we keep all the divisive fake facts, conspiracy theories off of these systems without compromising free speech in a democracy? So you got that going on. I have the issue going on with my 14 and 12 year old grandsons. How do I make them uh, smart enough to know when they're seeing rubbish on the internet because they like to play games and, you know, interact with their friends. How how do they know what is a trusted source and what isn't? So even at a personal level, in our families, we have this whole issue of having to deal with uh, the quality of information, because it can be dangerous. The most obvious example that we've recently all gone through is COVID. People who believe that uh, conspiracy theories, that that, uh, certain uh, uh, cures would would fix COVID for you, died. Uh, uh, In the United States, uh, uh, medical authorities believe that about 150,000 people died who did not have to die from COVID so far because they believed in false facts about uh, COVID, that it didn't exist or that they could drink some horrible... Concoction. So, one hundred fifty thousand people died because of fake facts. That's a reality. That's a sad, sad story. But so, fake facts is a is a serious problem. And of course, the political scientists today are complaining that they're worried. You know, the fake facts are going to destroy democracy in the, in the Western world. And of course, uh, in the Ukrainian war, you're seeing it play out. But you know everybody plays with fake facts all the time, as they have in every war, going back many hundreds of years, but they have better technology now for doing it. no, but it's a I mean I've had this the the,
1: the same conversation or the although it was in passing with my students, with my postgraduate students, and I was surprised uh, because it really made me think how am I going to put you know, project, inform, educate about what is um, and what is not trustworthy information because they are skeptical. They, they don't want to, you know, they, they were coming to a rather technical topic, and, but but still on the back of their mind, they, they, they could feel free of say well, I can give my own interpretation to this and that will be fine. Of course, in an educational setting, that doesn't work, because <laughs> if, if they don't come back with what I think is the truth, then they fail. And that will be a fact, yep. you know, and we ended up the end the, of the discussion. No? You can think whatever you want to, but these are the rules of the game. But coming back, coming back to the book, um, in order to cover this very large uh, range of topics and areas, um how was it that that you were able to articulate and and to gain depth into those discussions? what would in other instances be called you know w- w- what is your 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 field work or what is the 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 material that you're using to be able to to tell this these stories how how what what do you choose and how do you
0: brought it together yeah the strategy was was fairly simple uh I knew that the greatest amount of information, new information, and how it was applied uh, was largely organized by academic discipline. And those academic disciplines grew out of what the librarians did in the 19th century to organize all their books and magazines because they had too many. You know, And so they had to organize it in ways that would make sense for the economists, the historians, and so on so once once that happened, I had uh, done a lot of research over the years about information ecosystems and one uh, one information ecosystem uh, think of it like an industry would be a uh, an academic discipline, say uh, economics and the economists all talked to each other they didn't talk to anybody else they just talked to each other. The physicists all talked to each other they didn't talk to economists or historians or you and I you know so you have in each one of these disciplines, an ecosystem that was very similar to every other ecosystem. They had their associations. They had their academic journals. They had their certain book publishers. They had their conferences, where they all showed up and talked to each other. And they, they set up uh, standards of uh, academic research and academic uh, discussion. And they trained students that way generation after generation after generation. So what I did was for each of these disciplines is to take a look at their information ecosystems. What were their associations? How often did they meet? What were the conversations they had? Uh, What did they write about in their journals? What were their books about? What were the uh, courses they taught? Uh, And I would do that discipline after discipline after discipline. And I learned a couple of things. One is they all behave more or less the same way. They all have their associations. They all have their journals and so on. So that led me to say, well, for each of these disciplines, I have to take a look at those four or five things that are characteristic of every discipline. And I was never disappointed. I could have looked at more disciplines, uh, but all I would have done is make the book fatter. It would not have delivered any message. Now, all of that grew out of the scientific method and the way people were trained in universities, largely in the 1700s and 1800s, and that had continued right down to the present. I like to make the joke, uh, which is unfair, that you could take a, uh, a professor from the 1890s and put him in a modern university classroom, and the only thing you would have to teach him is how to turn on the lights, that everything else would be the same. You know, he'd have his blackboard, he'd have the students in front of him, he would give the 45 minute lecture, you know, it hasn't changed that much. Uh, now, I like to make a joke about that, but the, there's, a, there's a profound truth there in that there are certain behaviors among all creators and users of information in the academic world uh, that behave the same from one discipline to another. It turns out the same thing happens in jobs, whether it's in business or in government, or even if you're a farmer, Uh, where you would think you don't have an infrastructure, but they do. Uh, They learn that they should have books, that they should have uh, journals, that they should have uh, newspapers, that there should be experts that they can go to to ask specific questions about their specific situation. The idea coming back to to the idea of tools. So... I discovered that that behavior also existed, whether you were a farmer or the president of the United States, you basically did the same kind of thing. You wanted certain types of information. You knew to do that and you knew to have uh, confidence in it and you knew to use it. And so you see this, on the one hand, this homogeneous behavior, but on the other hand, you have this tremendous fragmentation of information because somebody today cannot know Economics, physics, and so on. Whereas in the 18th century, a lot of people did. My favorite example is Benjamin Franklin. He, you know, he worked on electricity, but he also uh, helped establish the United States. Yeah. You know, so he was a political scientist. He was a media mogul, and he was a a STEM person, right? A, a scientist, all in one person. Well, you can't do that today. Um, uh, so th- there was a lot of fragmentation in the information as, as people built their disciplines and their silos. So today, for example, uh, somebody asks you, well, Bernardo, what are you? Well, I'm a historian. Um, in the uh, 18th century, you would have gone, uh, I don't know, I'm just a really well-educated guy and I'm interested in a lot of things. And so t- if you were doing that today, we'd say, oh, Bernardo is a genius. He's a polymath. Right? They have a word for that. But it's so rare that it doesn't get done. So that's how I organized and how I think people should look at it. Now, here's the problem that we have. And it steps beyond the book. When you ask the question, so what? Why? Who cares? Well, we care because we have so much fragmentation of information that we may be missing Uh, Gaps of knowledge that are very important between disciplines and one of the things that computers has allowed us to begin to do is to reintegrate information, groups of information that were never integrated in the 20th century because we humans could not master two or three disciplines, we we were lucky we could master a corner of one discipline, so this is where, for example, artificial intelligence comes in the role of databases. why is Google so popular? I mean, you could write a a question, make a query, and uh, Google doesn't care what discipline it comes from. It's not loyal to its discipline, the way scholars are. It, you know if, if the information to answer your question comes from history and political science and economics, it's going to put that all in front of you at the same time. And yet, when you and I were trained in in graduate school, we were taught you should only consult scholars in your field. So, when I was a university student, you know, I, uh, studying history, I only read history journals and history books. Today, in order to do my work, I have to read things by physicists and computer scientists and economists. And it's hard, but computing is beginning to help reintegrate information so we get a better view of what's going on. And along the way, interesting things have happened. My favorite one right now is uh, the improvement in the predictability that an answer is correct. Let me, let me give you an, an example. In, in the 1900s, if you were working as a translator, say from Spanish to English, English to Spanish, you had to know both languages. You had to be completely fluent in, in both languages. And hopefully you got the cultural nuance behind certain uses of words and so on. Uh, and, and that was very important. So you can get a job at the United Nations very quickly, no problem. Today, when you go to Google Translate function, it doesn't do that. It doesn't know the language. What it does is it looks at millions of uh, lines of Spanish text and English text and analyzes it and says, well, you know, 98% of the times when Bernardo uses the word whatever, Name, uh, in Spanish, it comes out as nombre. So, if Bernardo wants to know what the Spanish word is for name, what Google does, it says, "Well, n- there's a 98% chance that nombre is the right word for name." But we won't tell him that is a 98% chance. All he, all Bernardo wants to know is what is the word. So they'll pop up on the screen nombre, and you'll take that and you'll believe it and you'll you'll use it. Okay. That's how it's done. So that's how, for example, Google can translate 200 languages. It, it does it by checking the probability that a particular phrase is the same. That's what's happening today. So probability becomes a very useful thing. And is this the most
1: surprising results or, or learning that you did from writing this
0: book? Or what would that be?
1: What would be the most surprising result? After having written the book,
0: um, I would say that uh, this how serious it is that we need to reintegrate information. Uh, that now I know that sounds a little boring, but actually it's not. Uh, the probability example is is a, is one that illustrates this, uh, but it, it plays out in other areas. For example. When you and I were children, we were taught that there were nine planets. And then eventually they got rid of Pluto. They said they demoted Pluto and said, well, maybe you're not a planet. I think it's back. It got restored. But what we know today is that there are billions of planets. Now, how do we know that? What happened was that gaps between our knowledge began to get filled in. When new bodies of knowledge could be integrated, such as the role of sensors, uh, more powerful telescopes, a better understanding of radio signals, a better understanding of electronics or electrons, I should say, neurons. Uh, And so the big surprise for me was how important filling in those gaps were, because we haven't been to billions of planets. Mm -hmm. But every physicist you go to today, space scientists, will tell you, absolutely, for sure, seguro, definitely. Uh I am as confident that there are billions of planets out there as as it is that Jim Cortado was born on September 7th. That is a huge surprise. Because a priest might say, Well, you can only do that through faith. You know, you you have to believe that there are billions of planets. And the physicist would say, No, I know for a fact, those they exist we get these radio signals that bounce off these bodies of rocks and so on out out there in space and it takes this amount of time for it to go back and forth so i can tell you not only does it exist but how big it is and how far away it is and they and they believe it as much as i believe that i was born on september 7th yes but uh, and and as you
1: were mentioning a moment ago it's also a question that if you're working on this on the basis of probability therefore you also sensors and sensors right whatever but it's probably probability then you have to realize that if you don't question this you might be assuming as a
0: fact something that is wrong ah and you're absolutely right And, and uh one of the one of the interesting things about both the scientific method of research and also what has actually happened in all disciplines is that uh there is this belief among experts that no, no piece of information is necessarily absolutely true. Uh, it, it should be questioned. It should be refined. You know, when was Jim born? Well, he was born on September 7th. His mother says it was five minutes after 12 o'clock. That was in the eastern time zone of the United States and North America. But in, uh, in Asia, that would have been September 8th. Right, I think it is, if I have my math right. So was he really born on September 7th? Well, so information changes and you have to accept that in science. And so you're always gonna be skeptical. Uh, And it doesn't matter whether it's in history or physics or medicine. And that's how we went from nine planets to billions of planets. Yes, it is nine planets for now, but be open to the idea that it would be billions, and then when in fact it happens, you accept it, you prove it, you challenge it, you verify, and you keep verifying, keep proving, until it changes. Now, why do you want to do that? In, In a lot of cases, you want to do that because circumstances really do change. Military technology changes. So yeah, the bow and arrow works, but a uh, a tank works better on the battlefield. Mm. You change, you know. You say, well, you know, they, we still use bow and arrows, but not for warfare anymore. We we use it for certain types of hunting, but we but we won't hunt deer with with a uh, a tank. So it, it changes, and and that's why you constantly have to challenge the information and they may find that you know billions of planets is not the right answer and maybe it's trillions of planets or maybe the whole idea of planets is no longer relevant at some point that it's it's it doesn't make sense anymore so you have to be open to that i believe and one of the things that came out of this book is that uh information is not necessarily hard like a rock uh it can transform over time or it can be interpreted differently you know it doesn't look as red to me as as you say maybe it looks to me a little bit more green than red you know that kind of an idea so i'm increasingly thinking that information can also be a bit plastic Not all of it, but uh, because I still think I was born on September 7th. And I have a birth certificate from the hospital that says I was born on September 7th. So I was able to verify that my mother did not lie to me. And she did not lie to me about uh, coming right at five minutes after 12 at noon. Um, So I verified the truth of what she told me. But again, you know, if I'm in Australia, maybe Jim was born on September 8th. And what does birth mean? I mean, uh, today now, uh, we have uh, lawsuits in the United States where people are saying, well, maybe a, a an unborn child in the womb is actually a citizen with U.S. constitutional rights. There are, there are cases going through the courts in, in Texas and Georgia where people are arguing that. Well, oh, wow. Okay. I thought you weren't alive until you were born. That's the way we were raised, right? But- an unborn child is a, is a living creature. And so now the question becomes, when did it become a living creature? At conception or at birth? So you see how information can be more plastic. Yeah. And, and coming back to
1: your example of the birth certificate, it also happened or, or it came to mind that it's not only by disciplines, but also through time when you decide what is the source that makes that information valid and i'll give you a, a counter a quick counter example of your birth certificate example <clears throat> i was getting a passport and for the first time i was about 45 years old for the first time in my life i the the the, the passport officers made made me realize that I had been registered uh, in what they call lapsed that is after one year that I was born and that was because I had a brother and we were both registered in the civil so, uh, the civil registry on the same day so mm-hmm. was... yeah yeah so he said i cannot trust the, the the birth certificate that you are the age that you say you are because um, anything could could happen, so you need to give me some other form of information to uh, yes. verify. to, to correlate. Yes, <laughs> as thought, you are. It so happened that my mother was with me, and she was also getting her passport. So I entered into this very um, unique conversation with a passport officer, saying, "Well, here is my mother, and she can tell you that I came." Out she
0: was of- there. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that i am here and she has all of and, and by the way she has all of her documents that would say that she is who she is she is and that yeah. she is as old as well but she's she is and that I will reflect in this this birth certificate and said well no 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 we, can, we cannot take it so it was a it was a it was a um um yeah interesting conversation ah but, but, but it's uh, <laughs> to what can you you know it's Yes, you've made the point that it changes across discipline. What do you think it's a fact, and what is what? How do I, what is the source that tells me that this information is valid? But that also changes. I mean, come in in, in in precisely you you talked about sensors, but you also in the book talk about accounting. Yeah, when talking about business business organizations, and uh, in this case, or at least at the beginning of of that chapter seven you 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 say well people take for granted or or assume that the way that formats and standards are are created produces valid accounting information Mm -hmm. but having having worked with some some accounting accountants and accounting historians you know that also can you know they they can get into 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 very big debates not only as to you know oh yeah we we have a format that uh, my 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 example on that is you know okay a chair and a table are assets of a company good but not all chairs and or tables are the same
0: right yeah
1: so uh, so it's what kind of asset do we have secondly coming back to the in discussions we just having a, a a moment ago, they have looked at how accounting manuals change and information that accounting manuals change, right. and that is important because you also make the point as as to you know how this discussion evolves and how is this this discussion about what is information and what is valid information permeates the the professions, and and one thing that it's that it's um, that 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 has come that that comes out. Or, or that is certainly the certainly there they have been. I've had in, engaging debates on on this. Is that because something is in in an accounting manual doesn't mean that it's happening in practice? Correct. So, so you know what you were using as your index of how this understanding is changing does not necessarily mean that you know. It, it matches practice I and mean, it's the same thing with sensors you think you know right you are assuming that the sensor is 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 right you 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 believe or you want to you you want to believe that the sensor is right but you know when you get a better sensor, then you you might be able to realize that the older sensor was giving you yeah uh, um
0: well a couple five. of things are going on a couple of things are going on one is all through the 19th and 20th century, there is this aspiration for more precision. So, for example, in the, in the case of your, your birth, there is a, a, another way to get to precision. Uh, the passport officer could have said to your mother, uh, did you baptize the baby three days after the baby was born the way the Catholic Church requires? And if she said yes, well, then they can go, go visit the priest and, and find a record, date it. So you know the cross cross foot. So it's an act of precision. The second thing is going on is that uh, as part of the act of precision, one of the reasons why you have accounting is because it does provide a, an agreed-to uh, set of precise types of information that people are prepared to run the business on. Okay. Uh, so it is it is back to our idea that we were creating new information, uh, whether it it reflects reality or not, obviously is the same thing. You know, do, how, do we really have billions of uh, planets or not? You know, it, it's, it is, it's a similar uh, conversation. And I personally, for example, know from having been in business for so many decades that uh, uh, there are accounting records that really do not reflect the reality of what is happening on the street. Or uh, my favorite example being a a lot of the data that is collected for annual reports does not necessarily reflect the true status of the quality of uh, the economic performance of a company. That's why you have regulators making uh, more requirements that people collect even more data. So you look at an annual report for today for a company versus what that document looked like 30 years ago And uh, you have less photographs today of uh, wonderful products and so on, and more tables and charts. It's very difficult to read an annual report today in comparison. Um, So you're you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, The information has changed. So you have uh, a desire for precision. You create information that you are willing to use as a tool. So you look at the annual report of a company Uh, And uh, you'll decide whether you're going to invest in that company, whether you're going to buy their products or not based on that. And you're going to pay your executives based on the data that's in that, regardless of how true it is or not. (laughs) Excuse me. So you've got that. The other thing is going on all through the 19th and 20th centuries, and it's not going to go away, is the use of uh, mathematics uh, and uh, statistics to help define a more precise world. You go to anybody today and say, well, uh, which is more precise, that uh, it's 11 degrees centigrade outside, or that the weather feels comfortable or or not, right? In other words, the death of the adjective and the rise of of the number. Economics is a good example. You can read a a paper written by an economist, or we used to call them political economists, from the 18th century, um, like uh, Adams, Wealth and Nations, and he used adjectives and nouns and verbs. Pick up any issue of any economic journal today, any article, and if you're not an economist, you're not going to make it much past the first paragraph or two. It's just, you can't. It's all physics and, and Greek and uh, mathematics. And in fact, in the book, uh, I actually have an illustration of a page by uh, an at t Bell Labs uh, expert on telecommunications who's considered the father of modern information uh, theories, even though there's a debate about that. But you see the page, and there are three lines of uh, english and then the rest of it's mathematical formulas and that went on for 49 pages that way so we have this desire for precision desire for use of math and one of the one of the uh, things that i realized i guess i was the last human being on earth to realize this is that mathematics is a language it has a grammar it has a way of uh, expressing itself I wish somebody had told me that when I was about eight years old. I would have understood mathematics better because at eight, I understood the concept of learning a language because I was living outside the United States. And so I knew that you got to, you know, I, I had to learn Arabic and I had to learn English. And they were just ways of communicating other things. Had somebody told me that mathematics was a language, I would have gone. Ah, okay. I now understand why I have to know how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide, and then later on calculus and so on. It's like f- Calculus is fine literature. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. It, it took me to graduate school to, to realize that. But, but uh, yeah, you're right. Well, uh, James Quartar, thank you very much for being in New Books Network. Tell us a little bit about what is going to be your next project.
0: Um, I've got uh, a couple things going on. Uh, first, is I have to continue the conversation about uh, birth of modern facts because birth of modern facts is is a formal history, and yet people want to know well, what's going on today. So I'm writing a book now that talks about the role of information today, building off this whole historical experience, and that's where I talk a lot about fake facts. But also the reintegration of large bodies of information and uh, what we have to do in terms of, uh, if you will, literacy, a new form of literacy, AI literacy and so on. So th- that's one project. The other project that I have going on is uh, I, I have one more book to write that I've started to write on uh, uh, IBM. I did not get everything I wanted done in that 700 page book. Mm. Uh, Everybody tells me, whether they're customers, regulators, or employees, that the thing that made IBM the most important uh, computer company in the 20th century was its corporate culture. And everybody who's written about its corporate culture has done really a uh, terrible job at it. I know because I worked in the company for decades. So I'm writing a history of IBM's corporate culture. Because what people tell me is it doesn't matter whether they're in Japan or Paris or New York, it's the same. And everybody in multinational corporations wants to do that, have that around the world. How did IBM do that? It's like the Catholic Church. You go to mass in New York, Paris, or Japan, it's the same thing. The only difference is that because of Vatican II is that they do it in Japanese, French, or English, and not just only in Latin. Well, IBM had its Latin, it's called English, but it also had its culture. And so I'm uh, telling that story because it's very relevant to multinational uh, uh, corporations today. And there are over 80,000 of these companies. And uh, they employ hundreds of millions of people around the world. So this is a very critical issue for them, how to get integration around the world. for reasons of productivity and revenue. So uh, that's why I'm writing that book. And I'm very close to finishing it. Hopefully
1: we, we will have you again at the New Books Network talking talking about it. Look look forward to, to reading that. Thank well. you. <laughs> and thank you very much for being with us. And to our listeners, thank you for being with us as well. If you haven't subscribed, do subscribe to the channel. And if you're a subscriber, then uh, don't forget to rank us or like us, as that uh, always helps. Thank you very much.